Isn't it a great opportunity to come together this afternoon? As you and I have already sung these very uplifting and encouraging songs, and we've also had the precious privilege of approaching God in prayer, and of course, just a fellowship one with another. But now, for the next few moments, to give some consideration to a section of the Word of God. In fact, we're going to actually begin in Genesis, but that certainly won't be the last book we consider because we're going to look at an interesting woven thread. It might well be presented in such a way that you and I are going to begin in Genesis, but it's going to lead us in on a remarkable journey as we consider various books thereafter. The title of the lesson, as you can already see on the wall, Satan and the Seed of Woman. A moment ago, it was just read for us from Genesis chapter 3, and it is back to that passage I would ask you to consider with me in just a moment as we make some introductory comments. The Bible is such a breathtaking book. A series of documents that touch in so many ways the fabric of not only our being, but the actual consideration of, of course, what our future holds. We studied this morning about heaven, and we've even sung about it tonight as well. In Psalm 119, verse 161, it says, I stand in awe of thy word. Doesn't it tell, give us an appreciation of just how remarkable the sacred scriptures really are? They actually are that we can, that can make your mouth and mind drop open in amazement as we piece together the truths that God has revealed. You'll notice following that on the slide, there's perhaps important to consider briefly the topic of seed. I realize the, the idea of seed is not anything terribly new to us. We know what it's like in the spring to plant a seed, and we understand about that which will come forth from it. But the Bible frequently makes use of seed. In Luke 8, 11, it says the seed of the kingdom is the word of God. And therefore, you and I look time and again to the plan of salvation and the truth of the scriptures, knowing that will produce true, true congregations, true Christians, and of course, that which is pleasing to God. But as you'll also quickly notice, tonight our interest is not that seed particularly, but rather a different one. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there is a saga that begins to unfold there, having to do with Satan, having to do with Eve, and having to do with her seed. Tonight, what is that all about? And where does it lead us? And what things might you and I directly note along with it? Back to the text before us, I would ask that you turn back to it if you have left that place, because let's see if we can share a few comments some of them pretty particular about the nature of what took place on that occasion. Adam and Eve, of course, had chosen to sin. Even though they found themselves in that beautiful Eden, even though they found themselves there in wonderful correspondence and association with God, Eve chose to sin first, and then Adam shortly thereafter. And as they did that, we remember God came calling, if you please. He came to carry on conversation and to challenge them enormously with the nature of what they had done and, of course, about the punishment that would come along with it. But he first addressed the serpent. He addressed Satan, who, of course, had taken the form of the serpent. And in verse number 15 it says, God speaking to the serpent says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. And between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now that statement is very specific. 
it is very direct, isn't it? Let's unpack it briefly. God first says, I will put enmity. There would be a prompting motivation in light of what the God of heaven would ultimately cause to come to be. Now this would be developed by the thought of the hatred that would exist between those who are of God and those who are not. In particular, you might notice, he does use the word enmity. That word enmity, as you can see, literally means personal hostility. That Hebrew word carries with it the thought of animosity. Other places, that very same Hebrew word is translated hatred. For instance, in Ezekiel 25, 15. When you keep the thought of hatred in mind, great animosity existent between. God on this occasion addressing the serpent says, There will be great hostility between you, serpent, and the seed of the woman. Now it even begins by observing Eve herself. For he first says, I'll put in between thee and the woman. That for which Adam and Eve stand and that which you have brought about, there is a great divide between the two. Adam and Eve were created, they were fashioned, if you please, by the God of heaven for the intended purpose of obeying His will and keeping His commandments. But you, serpent, have encouraged them to do opposite to that. You have brought into it the temptation that led to their fall. And you'll notice that enmity that it began to exist then not only existed in that generation, but in all generations ever since. God quickly notes, not only will this enmity exist between you, serpent, and Eve, but between your seed and her seed. Between your seed and her seed. And there's the usage of the word seed. As you notice on this particular statement, you and I are reminded so often about the Bible's usage of this word seed. Later in the days of Abraham, it was used in a very, very remarkable way. God specifically telling Abraham, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. We read in Genesis 22, 22 verse 18, With that reference to seed, we of course appreciate later that Paul develops a remarkable truth about it because that word seed is singular. It is not plural. And as Paul develops that in Galatians 3.16, he highlights that the seed spoken of there is Christ. Now you and I, of course, here are several chapters prior to the days of Abraham. This seed of the woman, this seed of the serpent, Tonight, as we're about to see, we'll see the embodiment of those seeds in a number of places, that of a serpent at least. But of course, clearly in mind, we know the seed of the woman already in view from the great God of heaven was down the stream of time, the coming of the Christ. You might go ahead and note the way that verse ends. It shall bruise thy head. You may notice immediately the word seed again seems to be definitively singular. And as, and as if we weren't sure of it, he then says, And thou shalt bruise his heel. He is again carrying the singular adjective. And thus in view here of the fact the seed of the woman, although many human beings have existed, there was a particular occurrence in which the seed would be a specific individual. It's going to be Jesus Christ. And you and I know well when we come to the gospel accounts, indeed, Satan was able as you can see on this slide, 
to bring about a very serious blow to Jesus, killed him. However, we might ask, in this very place, didn't the God of heaven already say to the serpent, you will bruise his heel. This seed of the woman is such that you, Satan, will bruise his heel, meaning you will inflict a wound, you will inflict a blow, damage if you please, but it is not to be ultimately and finally eternally fatal. But on the other hand, it says, it shall bruise thy head. This seed of the woman is going to inflict a fatal, eternally, deathly blow to the serpent. And this blow, again, as it relates to the head, was a much more severe kind of punishment, a much more severer thing. At this point, pause to notice what we've seen then together. In the early stages of time, as of this point, there were only two human beings on the planet, Adam and Eve. Admittedly, they had chosen to sin, but already to them, God had made a statement indicative of the movement and the compelling character of what would develop in time. It's going to emanate in the cross, but it has ramifications, of course, for all of us still today. As we proceed through this lesson from here onward, closing that slide, you might appreciate something remarkable here was asserted. We've already seen then God's development. Devil, your head's going to be crushed. Your power is going to be overwhelmed. Your nature and that which is your commissioning is going to be absolutely and totally and utterly defeated. Now, how is it going to happen? The details haven't been given yet at this verse, but notice God did say it's going to be by the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is going to make it happen. It'll be through that seed that your head serpent's going to be crushed. And so it is that you and I from this point forward begin to entertain a journey. Now, I might ask at this point, have you ever pondered, what did the devil take out of this incident? Now, we know that the serpent had been cursed. Upon your belly you'll go all the days of your life. We know also that indeed as God placed punishment upon the devil here, your head is going to be crushed. Your power is going to be finally and ultimately and totally taken. So, as after this scene is over, and Adam and Eve, of course, have their sentences pronounced upon them, but as the devil took away from this that same set of punishments given to him, if you were the devil, or if you had his mentality, what would you have tried to do? Wouldn't you have begun to wage attack against the seed of the woman? If I can defeat him before he defeats me, then I ultimately maybe can escape this sentence that God has decreed. I would think that the devil would have put the seed of the woman in his crosshairs, and he would have tried with all the effort and might available to him to withstand and perhaps bring to naught the nature of the seed of the woman. As we begin the journey then, what are some things he tried? Was he successful or not? To the next slide, we come as follows. May I suggest to you not many chapters hereafter. We encounter a gentleman named Noah. And as you recollect with me the scene of the world on that occasion, of course it was an exceedingly wicked place. Genesis 6 verse 5 even de details the fact that the very thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually. The human family had moved aside from the truth of God. They had turned their attention to following the devil to following the serpent, to following Satan. 
you can already begin to appreciate it looks like the devil was winning. It looks as if the power and correspondence available to him is such that over the course of time, he had actually begun to have the ascendancy. I put on there the time stamp with some of these things. The flood occurred 1,656 years after the creation. So in other words, from the days of the curse placed upon Adam and Eve and also, of course, upon the serpent, we have somewhat over 1,600 years elapsed. And in that millennium and a half or so, the devil had gained sufficient power where people were following him by the droves. It looked as if he was on the road to victory. You and I remember, though, that something remarkable is noted. Even though the world was given to such ungodliness, reference is quickly made to the man Noah. He walked with God, Genesis 6, verses 8 and 9. It is such that God was high in His thoughts and in His respect. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Ponder it for a moment. The whole world wicked but one man and his family. The forces of evil far outnumbered the forces of good, at least in terms of human condition at that point. It looked as if Satan certainly was on the way to victory. Thanks be unto God for Noah. Thanks be unto God there was that one man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He, his wife, the three sons and their wives boarded the ark just as God shut them in. And they were preserved. Those comments I would ask you to notice. Although that decree of the seed of the woman was close to being null and void, it wasn't so. What if every person had been evil and the whole human family had been destroyed in the flood of Noah? There would have been no more seed of woman. Interesting, isn't it? But Noah did survive. The bloodline continued. The promise made in Genesis 3.15 still awaited fulfillment. And thus things start all over. Coming off that ark, we find Noah and his wife, again the three sons and their wives, and so repopulation of the earth began. A few chapters further, we come to a man named Abraham. Now by this point, the plot has thickened as follows. Remember, God had said to the seed of the woman would be the very one that would crush the devil's power. However, we learned that by now that particulars had been focused not to the entirety of the human family, but rather to the seed of Abraham. It couldn't just be anybody. It had to be through the lineage, the progeny, if you please, of Abraham that this occurrence to the crushing of the devil's power would happen. However, there's a, an amazing thing here. Abraham and his wife didn't have any children. In fact, he and she alike were old, far past the age of childbearing. You can almost see the grin on the devil's face. It looks like I've succeeded here according to the very plan and wisdom of God. It's got to be through this man's seed, but he doesn't have any children. And his wife is 90 years old. It looks like this plan is going to come to naught. But lo and behold, God blesses both Abraham and Sarah. And though in old age she is, and he alike, they bear a son. It's the son of promise, Genesis 21, verses 1 and following. His name is Isaac, and you may remember that name carries with it the thought of laughter. In fact, both she and Abraham were very much uncertain about the fulfillment of this promise. However, as you give thought to it, 
May I suggest there was another instant in his life again when one more time maybe the devil was ready to declare near victory. It happened in Genesis 22, even after the son was born. God gave the order, go and kill him and offer him as a sacrifice, Genesis 22, verses 1 and following. And thus again, what must the devil have thought? It's got to be through him, and yet God has commanded him to be slain. You can see as Abraham pulls back the knife, ready to take the life of his own son. And finally his hand is stayed. What the devil no doubt hoped did not come to pass, for the boy's life was saved. One more time, the bloodline was on the brink of annihilation. The bloodline was on the verge of failing, and yet God preserved it. Isn't it amazing then to consider then the saga that began with the seed of the woman is still going strong after the days of, of Abraham and so Now we learn something more in Genesis 49. It wasn't just any one of the particular seed of Abraham. In Genesis 49 verse 10, while on his deathbed, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, made the specific statement it would be through Judah. It would be this one, the great Messiah, the great blessing for the human family, wouldn't just be a general descendant of Abraham, it would be of the, of the lineage of Judah. And so now the devil was able to focus his efforts on Judah. He needed to destroy the tribe of Judah. He needed to destroy them because they're the ones through whom the seed of the woman would come that would crush his head. Isn't it interesting as you find the selection of Judah? Almost the next observation in the Old Testament. All of the children of Israel found themselves in Egypt and it wasn't smooth sailing. They found themselves there under hard rigor and difficult oppression. They found themselves, including the tribe of Judah, in very, very hard conditions. However, the God of heaven brought the plagues and delivered that people from the, the Egyptian overlords. But one more time, as you then consider with me the feature at the Red Sea, consider this. Here was all of the children of Israel, including the tribe of Judah. They were standing on one side of the Red Sea, and the Egyptians were chasing them. Here they were on the very brink of potential annihilation, and if that were to have happened, the bloodline would have ceased. And the promise God made in light of crushing the devil's power couldn't have come to pass. All the tribe of Judah would have been destroyed. However, God instructs Moses to hold out his rod, the water parts, and through they go, and they are preserved while the Egyptians drown. One more time, maybe the devil thought victory was nearly his, but it wasn't to be. One more time, the power of God preserved that bloodline, preserving again the hope for that promise delivered in Genesis 3.15. As we turn the page from the close of that slide, notice what else begins to transpire in the remainder of the Old Testament. Remember, think about where, what Satan must have known. He knew one by one it was not only through the seed of Abraham, it was specifically through Isaac. It was specifically through Judah, so he can cast arrows, if you please, toward the tribe of Judah. Notice as we come then, we next learn about the selection of a single person, namely David. Out of all the descendants of the tribe of Judah, it would be David through whose seed this particular one would come. 
No wonder then you and I began to see David occupying a pretty special role in the Old Testament. I would ask you to notice the following. Haven't you perhaps thought it interesting, the difficulties that David faced? So many of the Psalms highlight the afflictions, the oppressions, the woes that are heaped upon him. And yet David seemed, don't you think, like a reasonably good person, at least up until 2 Samuel 11. He tried to do what was right. He strived to be a very humble young man. He tried to do that which was noble and upright and good, and yet enemies surrounded him. Can't you just see the devil gathering forces around David? If it's through his seed where this one's going to come to crush my power, I'm going to try to eliminate David if I can. And so Saul throws javelins at him and tries to take David's life. Enemy forces try their best to remove his power and the structure of his organization. I would ask you to notice particularly Psalm 56, Psalm 57, and Psalm 59 where David makes references to the intensity of the enemies and what they brought his way. I would suggest that's likely the devil gathering forces against David. He knew that if he can bring to naught the character and the will of David, then he would be able to end this bloodline and the seed of the woman would not be able to take his power. But you and I know well that although David wasn't a perfect man, he did choose to sin and he did choose to act in an ungodly way. But nonetheless, we find that God made a promise to him in 2 Samuel 7. Beginning in verses 9 and following of that chapter, God said, It'll be your seed, David, through whom the Messiah is going to come. And you and I appreciate that's the very one that would crush the power of the devil. The saga then continues onward. Following the selection of David, we reach what arguably is one of the most significant crises in the Old Testament. Keep in mind, God had already promised to David, it'll be through your seed, David. And then one by one, David's descendants reign on the throne of Israel and Judah. But something remarkable happens when we arrive at King Joash. If you'd like to read in 2 Kings 11 as well as 2 Chronicles 22, the following saga unfolds. I would call your attention to a woman named Athaliah, a very wicked woman. And you can understand why. Her mother was a woman named Jezebel. Her daddy was a man named Ahab. Imagine the kind of household she grew up in. And yet Athaliah had reached the point where she married into the kingly family. Her husband died, and so she usurped the throne. She became the queen of Judah. However, she wished to remove anybody that had any threat to her queenship, and so she began one by one to kill all the seed royal, every one of them. In fact, she thought she killed every single one of the seed of David that had any right to the throne. Ponder if a moment, what if she had succeeded? What if she had wiped out all the royal seed? Then the promise God made to David, the promise that God then earlier had made to the devil... How could it have come to pass for all of David's seed would have died? But thanks be unto God, she did not succeed. For unbeknownst to her, the youngest son of the one who had been king, the very lineage and the very descendant of David, she took that little baby boy and hid him. Athaliah thought she'd killed them all. 
But that little boy survived. They had to hide the boy for six long years. For if he'd ever been found, she'd have had him slain. So they hid him carefully, discreetly, diligently. And then finally, when the proper time came, at the tender age of seven, he was pronounced the next king, and Athaliah couldn't believe it. She thought she'd killed every one of them, and yet Joash lived. Don't you know the devil thought he had victory? All the seed royal had been destroyed, or so Athaliah thought. One more time, the devil was defeated. The bloodline continued. The promise that God made in Genesis 3.15 was still to be embodied. As you and I can notice that when I simply stated and ask you to notice, look how close the devil was to victory. It depended on the saving of one little baby boy, one year old. Let's look at the next one. The Babylonian captivity next comes before us. After these particulars of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin continue onward, we remember so very well they again often gave themselves to sinfulness and off into captivity they went. God turned them over with the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and Babylon conquered them. And there they were in a foreign land, far from their temple, you and I know so very well that there were some grave, grave difficulties. God even said on one point in Jeremiah 5 verse 1, Look through Jerusalem and see if you can find one righteous person, even one. Now you and I know so well that others had already been taken captive, and so there were some righteous, although perhaps not many. One more time, you and I might recall in 2 Chronicles 36, when we have a record given of that destruction of Babylon, of the destruction of Jerusalem. Now with the people in captivity, we come to the next crisis. It is the detail given to us in the book of Esther. I would ask you to again to comment, to think with me about the nature of what occurred. In the book of Esther, we now find, of course, that the people of God find themselves in this tragic situation. There was an evil man named Haman. Haman did not like Mordecai because Mordecai wouldn't bow before him. And we remember that in his trickery, Haman tricked the king into signing a decree that every single Jew was to be slaughtered on the 13th day of the 12th month. Now again, ponder that sentence if you would. If every single Jew were slaughtered, that would include the seed of David. That would have included the opportunity to see the fullness of the promise of Genesis 3.15. How would it have been possible if all the Jews had been destroyed for the one to come that would have been the seed of the woman? Well, this decree had been given. The king gave his official appreciation to it. And so it was. It was to be this way. Every single Jew was to be slaughtered. and There was nothing the Jews could do about it. However, we remember that the, king, the queen at the time was a lady named Esther. And she too was a Jew. She had been reared and of course encouraged along that line of thinking by her first cousin Mordecai. Her own parents had been, had been slaughtered and killed and so she was an orphan. As Mordecai took care of her, we remember that he ensured that she would appreciate the nature of her Jewish heritage. As the book of Esther unfolds before us, 
we remember that in an ingenious way, she, Esther, went in before the king and made a plea for her own people in light of the sentence given. And of course, ultimately, Haman was the one killed. The Jews survived. And one more time, the plan of the devil was thwarted. Don't you know, he must again have thought, I'm so close to victory. If all the Jews are killed on the 13th day of month 12, then there can be no seed of the woman and this sentence will fail upon me. It didn't happen. God preserved the people through Esther. And you notice as we come to the bottom of that slide one more time, aren't you impressed at the way the Old Testament helps us see that the seed of the woman is continuing onward, though at times it was a crisis situation? As we finish that slide and come to the next one, May I submit to you that it's not at all surprising that the devil was keenly interested in the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. You remember it, right? Herod, of course, was very much prompted by the fact that he had heard tell of the king of the Jews has been born. And he asked the wise men, where is this to happen? And they tell him, but don't you remember that he, in his great rage and in his interest, had every single baby boy in Bethlehem, below what he thought was the right age, killed. Infanticide. Can you imagine killing all those baby boys? The devil had his sights set upon ending this line of David, ending this seed of the woman. He was certainly trying his best. And yet one more time, you and I remember that God had already encouraged Joseph, you take your wife, Mary, and the baby and go into Egypt because they seek the child's life. And Joseph did it. And so little baby Jesus was safe and sound in the nation of Egypt. All the while, all the babies in Bethlehem, the baby boys, were being killed. One more time, the devil was defeated. One more time, his hope did not come to fruition. That wasn't the last time, though. When we arrive at Matthew chapter 4, we notice now that Jesus has grown up. I'm sure there are many other attempts that the devil made to bring to naught the power of the Christ, but all of them had failed. But the Holy Spirit especially gives us word about the temptation scene. You can picture it. Here was Jesus. He'd been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And yet you know how famished he must have been. And in light of that, the devil says, Turn these stones into bread if you're the Son of God. He baits the whole temptation with the fact, If you are who you say you are, then there shouldn't be any problem with this. It was, of course, a consideration hoping that this one will fail. Because now realize this with me. Throughout the course of the years, 4,000 years of history, the bloodline has been preserved, the seed of the woman is intact, and Jesus is now still alive. However, it is still to be noted that the Messiah, the Old Testament prophecies, foretold that He would need to be perfect and He'd need to give His life if the devil could succeed in tempting Him to the point where He would sin, all of it would end. And oh, how he tried. Turning stones into bread was just the first one. The second one, he took Jesus up on to the pinnacle of the temple. Throw yourself off, or don't you know the Scriptures themselves say, His angels will bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. 
One other temptation. Again, if you be the Son of God, prove it to me. Jesus didn't fall for it. But then a very interesting one came thirdly. I'm sure many of us have often reflected on this one. He showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said, every one of them I'll give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. Think about how much that would have been. After all, Jesus came from the greatness of heaven. He understood well what it was like to rule and reign. Jesus, if you'll bow down and worship me, you can have every person on earth and all the kingdoms that go with them. I won't bother you a bit. Jesus didn't fall for it. And aren't you thankful? The bloodline was still intact. He still hadn't sinned. As you and I close that consideration, perhaps we race to his death. Keep in mind again, if the devil had succeeded at any point and ended this bloodline and ended the character of the seed of the woman, he would have been the victorious one. God's plan would have failed. And yet you and I know so easily that when the time of the Lord's death came and the Old Testament had prophesied as to roughly when that would be and so the devil had to have known. He had to have known it was getting close. And so he assembled, it seems, all the forces available to him. The efforts of Judas, the efforts of the Pharisees, the efforts of those religious leaders who would have nothing but his life. Crucify him. They weren't satisfied to just beat him. They weren't satisfied to insult him or just mock him. We want his life. And so it was that there, as the devil brought about him the forces, crushing him with the thought of what ultimately would happen. You remember how that sweat like drops of blood was on his brow. The intensity that surrounded the moment, the pain of death that was his coming his way. You and I remember well in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came to arrest him, Peter whipped out a sword and cut off the right ear of Malchus and Jesus in a remarkable and humble status, healed that right ear and said, Peter, put your sword up for those that live by it are going to die by it. Isn't it remarkable then to recognize what the Lord said next? Peter, don't you know I could call legions of angels to deliver me from this moment? And if he had... The promise of Genesis 3.15 couldn't have come to pass. If Jesus had gotten fed up with it, if the difficulties and the matters surrounding what the folks were doing, if He had just gotten frustrated enough to call those legions of angels to end it, to maybe even take Him off the cross prior to His death, it all would have ended. It all would have ended. The promise that you and I had seen back in Genesis 3.15 couldn't have come to pass. But yet through it all, no wonder Jesus is able to make this monumental statement. In John 19, verse number 30, some of the very last words He ever stated. While on the cross, virtually it seems drawing His last breath, He said, It is finished. I'm sure we've often contemplated what did He mean by it? It certainly seems that he wasn't just talking about his life. It was far more profound and far more colossal than that. It appears to refer to not only the entire scheme of human redemption, the shedding of his blood, the price to make men and women right before God, all of that had now been paid. 
but it is finished appears to refer to something else as well, taking us all the way back to Genesis 3.15. It, the devil's power is crushed. By the fact that Christ was able to live sinlessly, by the fact he now died sinlessly, he in fact reached in and took the greatest power the devil ever had, that's death, removed it from him entirely, and now to die in the Lord's a blessing. It's not a sad thing at all. And we appreciate so amazingly, it is finished. Oh, the devil can still cause a little problem here and there. But in the final analysis, victory belongs to God. The revelation is a final assertion of that truth. Victory belongs to God and His faithful. Power of the devil has been taken. Didn't Jesus more than once say, you have to bind the strong man before you can take his goods. And He says, I have bound the strong man. The devil is portrayed as the strong man, and so he is. But Christ said, a stronger than the strong man is here, referring to himself. Jesus bound him. And in so doing, how blessed you and I are to appreciate that it takes us back to the scenes in which we can make a few, kind of, a few final comments. The preservation of that bloodline. It began in Genesis 3, verse 15. And although at times it became to a point of crisis when only one person like Joash or one person like Esther was the vital, pivotal factor in preserving it, it was preserved. Jesus was born precisely when it was proper for it to be so. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, Galatians 4 verse 4. And at the time of that, you and I appreciate, He indeed lived a perfect life, but he, of course, did die. But triumphantly, he was resurrected. Romans 1 verse number 4 still highlights the fact that's the final proof that he was the Son of God, the resurrection. In so doing, those final comments are then ours. In Hebrews 2 verse 14 and 1 John 3 verse 8, we are reminded that Jesus came to defeat the devil. And he did. He in, fact, he, in fact, crushed the head of the devil. He dealt him a fatal, eternal blow. You and I know that there is a place prepared for the devil and his angels. A place called Gehenna Hell, Matthew 25, 41. He is sentenced to there and there's nothing he can do about it. The power latent in the truth of the gospel, embodied in the coming of the Christ, the preservation of that bloodline, the seed of the woman... It is a sweet story, isn't it? Rather telling, don't you think? To see the, the noticeable movement through history bringing about the events of Jesus Christ. Maybe one final thought then. Salvation is only in Him. Every person today who joins forces with Christ is easily able to defeat the devil. Every person that's a Christian, a faithful child of God, attaches to a power far greater than that of the devil, attaches to a power far more eternally safe and sound than that of the devil. What about you and me? Are we faithful Christians tonight? If we are, we can hold on to the assurance and confidence that over 4,000 years of human history unfolded as God preserved that bloodline. And if God could preserve that bloodline... Can He take care of you and me? Can He daily offer to you and me the protection, the assurance, and the confidence that we need in order to live as we should?
Surely He can, and surely He will. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. And aren't we told, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee, Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. As we close this lesson tonight, the concluding words are at the bottom of that slide. I hope we've been impressed with that amazing prophecy of Genesis 3.15 and what it has brought about. Tonight, if you're not a faithful Christian, make it so. Maybe I should say, why not respond and allow the power of God to make it so? For after all, as you realize how God rules in the kingdoms of men, it is so tonight that He wants you to live with Him forever. He sent His Son to die for you. If we could be of assistance in your public response, we'd be happy to do that right now. Maybe there's someone here who is a wayward child of God. Though once a faithful Christian, you're not tonight. And you understand that the weight of your heart and the weight of your life is very much lower than it ought to be. Why not come back to your first love? Let us pray to God for you. We'd be delighted to do that. If you need to respond initially, though, that invitation demands that you realize the need to believe and to repent, to confess and to be baptized. If tonight we could be of assistance to you, why don't you come even now while together we stand and while we sing?